You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn to Genesis, Genesis 47. Does it seem like it's been a long time since we've been in Genesis? It's because it has. (laughs) We still have a a few more chapters to go. We come to, uh, really, we we return where we left off last time, which was verse 12 of this great chapter. So we pick up in verse 13, Genesis 47, verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 26. Genesis 47, beginning with verse 13. Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when, the, when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and in our land, by us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the, field, sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Heavenly Father, we do require your mercy this morning and your insight your teaching hand, Father, to be upon our hearts that we may profit from this study, that we may be enlightened by this study, 
that, Father, we may find ourselves changed more and more like Christ Jesus as a result of what we're doing, Father. So please, O Father, accompany your word and accompany this message, O Father, with the power of your Holy Spirit. For without you, O Father, the only thing that a human being, that a man would be able to do maybe is arouse a bit of curiosity. But Father, we come here with greater expectations than that. For, O Father, we look to you and we pray that, Father, you will speak to us this morning so that, Father, what we're doing here will have eternal value. We look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. To make the suggestion that crisis could be your friend could probably leave you labeled as practically insane today, I think. Um, to suggest that hard times and troubles could be our friend. Uh, people, a lot of people in our culture would say, are, are you crazy? Are you, are you absolutely nuts? Um, I mean, to teach that prosperity is of the Lord is a much easier lesson than to teach that loss is of the Lord as well, isn't it? I mean, it's easier. It's it's easy to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, isn't it? We love the melody of that. That sounds great. Praise God from whom all these things that we enjoy have come. Even though in our fallenness, we're often prone to take credit for the things that we have. That our mantra then would not be praise God from whom all things flow, but praise us from whom all good things flow. Forgive us for that, O Lord. Uh, but it's still, it's an easier lesson to teach that uh, all that is good in our life has come from God's hand. Now, to teach the, uh, the opposite of that, the equally true thing, that loss actually is from the Lord's hand, uh, that, that is a much more uh, difficult task. And, um, uh, but one of the problems that we really have today in enduring loss is that uh, we've either forgotten that truth or we've never, we've never really embraced the truth. That not only the good, the truth that not only the good things that come into our life are from the Lord, but also that loss itself is from the Lord as well. So it, it, unless we understand these things, how are we supposed to deal with loss? It cripples our ability actually to deal with loss. And uh, there is no doubt, there is just absolutely no doubt that much of uh, the drug addiction and increasing drug addiction and alcoholism and all of those isms um, are, are being fueled by this. Um, we don't know how we're, we're losing our ability to deal with loss. Uh, we're just simply losing our ability. Now, this morning, I want to go even a little bit further. I want to make the case that, and I want to make it from our text that, you know, crisis actually is our friend. And it's our friend for, for two reasons that I'm going to give this morning. One is that crisis reveals God's glory. And two, crisis plays a role in our salvation. That's really, the, the, that, that's the burden of this morning. Um, let's begin with verse 13. Let's begin just by looking at this text. And let's, let's see what we can do with it. Um, it's a difficult text in many respects. If you go to commentaries, sometimes this passage is actually skipped. And in my opinion, if you only write one sentence on all of this, you're skipping it. It's like the teacher says, okay, really? You know, 
as a 20-point essay question, you give one sentence. How's that fly? That really doesn't, does this only warrant one sentence? I've, I come across that. I'm like, really? One sentence? Two sentences on this text? But that having been said, having wrestled with this text, I started on this text on New Year's Eve, just getting a, you know, I love doing this. It's not, I just love doing it. And I started on New Year's Eve. I started to feel like I started to get a little handle on it. I worked on it New Year's Day. So I'm, okay, good. We're good. As the week progresses, I'll be in good shape. I worked on this 10 hours yesterday. I woke up Saturday morning. I'm like, I'm not in so good a shape here. Um, this is not easy. You'll, you'll see as we go through, this is not an easy test. It starts with verse 13. And I will tell you from wrestling with this text, and I share these things. The reason I share this with you, that I struggled with this, is because so many of you have come to me and said at different times, you've said, man, I, I don't just open this up and see all the things that you talk about. And I want you to know, I don't just open it up and see all that either. Okay? Um, join, the, join the party. Come on in. You're going to fit right in. Uh, if we're going to get anything out of the text, we've got to work really hard with it. I don't want you to think it's easy, nor do I want to make it look easy, because it's not easy. You know, it's, it's work that you do on your knees. You wear your knees out doing this. That's what you do. But it's wonderful work. Um, it's absolutely, that having been said, it's, it's absolutely wonderful work. I can assure you that if we don't get verses 13 and 14 right, we're not going to get this passage right. Verses 13 and 14 are so crucial to this passage. If you look at verse 13, and it's easy for us, before I start, it's easy for us to read right over verse 13. It's easy to read over that with a mind. You know, when you read, sometimes your mind's thinking about something else other than what you're reading, and all of a sudden you've gotten a paragraph or two down the page, and you're like, what did I just read? I don't know. Well, if we do that with verses 13 and 14, what we're going to be reading when we finally come to is going to disturb us. So verse 13, notice what is said there is clear enough. There was no food. Okay, there's no food. Now, I think it's hard for us to relate with that. You know, it's Sunday. What are we going to do when we leave here? I mean, we'll go home. We'll kind of, you know, relax. It's the Lord's day. Um, how many times will you open up the refrigerator door today? You open it up and you survey from top to bottom. You're not looking for something to eat. You're looking for something you're in the mood to eat, right? Uh, you look at uh, you don't see it. You look in the door. Maybe you open the drawers. You shut it. You open the freezer door. Maybe I'll make something. You look around. How about the cup? Oh, there's something that's cool. I wonder what I got to go with this. You look in the cupboards. You look in the pantries. Well, there's no food in the refrigerator. You don't need to open it up because you know there's no food in it. Why do you know there's no food in it? Because you've only had a limited amount of food for many weeks and you've looked at how many people are in your family and you have done the math and you realize we can only eat so much of this at a time because it's going to run out. We need to make this last as long as we can. You don't bother opening the refrigerator. In fact, you've unplugged it because there's nothing in it and there's nothing on the shelves. There's nothing in the cupboard, nothing in the pantry. There's no giant eagle that you're going to find open because there's nothing there. There's no Walmart. There's no sparkle. Even Dollar General had to shut down. It's hard for us to imagine that, you know. Um, these sermons are recorded and they're 
put up, Donald puts them up online, and it's really interesting. Sometimes we can see some metrics of people who are listening to these sermons. There, there, there may be some people who are going to listen to this sermon, and they're not going to skip over verse 13 because they've experienced this. What refrigerator? There's no refrigerator. Not only have they experienced it, but perhaps a tear will come out of their eyes. You see, when they read this chapter, when they get to verse 13, they stop. And perhaps they sob because perhaps they remember a loved one who starved to death. I'm developing this because that is what, notice what is said here. There was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe. That is really strong language. There's, there's, there's a crisis, and it's a national crisis. Notice it's very severe so that the land of Egypt languished. But it's even more than a national crisis. It's an international crisis. You see, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Fellas, how scary would it be? if there was no food to give to your children, your wife and your children. We're talking no food. Now, that's that's the gravity of what's going on here. That's what people are enduring in verse 13. That is what is happening. It's a grave situation. Now, when we get to verse 14, it's a snapshot from a different angle. In verse 14, the focus goes to Joseph. And notice what is said here. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now, this is extraordinary. Can you imagine the lines to get food down in Egypt? Can you imagine the traffic? Can you imagine what the parkway would look like? If the only place you could get food would be Pittsburgh, imagine getting through those tunnels. Probably any exit you get off, it'd probably be like a parking lot. And what's going on all day long, all day long, all day long? Gold and silver is pouring in, and it's heaping up, and it's heaping up, and it's heaping up as sacks are filled with grain and they're carted away. And what's extraordinary here is that we see no scandal What is Joseph doing? He brings the money into Pharaoh's house. If there was anything that could tempt Joseph, I mean, we're talking piles and piles and piles of gold and silver. Wouldn't there be a temptation to toss a nugget or two in the pocket? I mean, would anyone miss a nugget or two of of these tons of gold that are being brought in? But here we see Joseph being faithful to his calling. And quite frankly, and the reason why I'm not doing a review this morning is because we can review as we go along. What have we seen out of Joseph? You remember Joseph, he was sold into slavery, right? By his brothers, carted off to Potiphar. Now, Potiphar purchases him and he serves Potiphar so faithfully that Potiphar exalts him to his right hand, doesn't he? And it's only after Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of forcing himself on her that Potiphar's thrown in jail. Or I'm sorry, Joseph's thrown in jail, right? Now, what's Joseph doing in jail? Well, he's so faithful to the jailer that the jailer puts him in charge of everything. This is just what Joseph does. 
He's faithful. He faithfully serves wherever he's called to serve. And he serves so faithfully that along comes in God's providence, comes a, a cupbearer and a baker, and they have some dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams for the cupbearer and the baker, and off they go. They're released from prison. You remember the baker is hanged, just as Joseph said he would be, and the cupbearer, uh, he is spared. And then a couple years goes by, and Pharaoh has these dreams, and he calls in his People, you know, his dream interpreters, his uh, wise men, his panel, if you will. Uh, tell me what these dreams mean. Well, none of them could, could interpret it. And the cupbearer, probably very sheepishly, <laughs> said, Hey, uh, you know, when, uh, when I was in Rikers, uh, there was, I was in there with this guy, and uh, he could interpret dreams. Oh, man, could you imagine bringing that up in the king's court? Hmm. But... Pharaoh's all ears because no one can do it. Well, who is this guy? Go to Rikers, get him. Get him out of his orange jumpsuit. Clean him up and bring him in here. And that's what they do. And Joseph comes in and he interprets the dreams and you know the rest. He's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. All God's doing, God put him right where he wanted him to be. And what does Joseph say? Joseph said there's going to be seven years of good and plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. And they began that whole campaign of storing up this grain. And what do we find Joseph doing in verse 14? We find him being faithful to the call that he has been called to do. Um, he's being faithful to Pharaoh, but let's not stop right there. What is Joseph really doing? He's being faithful to the Lord. He's being faithful to the Lord. His faithfulness to the Lord is to such a degree that that gold and silver has really little hold on him. Little hold. And it's extraordinary that what we see there. Now, in verse 15, the situation turns to the economics of the crisis. We're told there that when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph with a proposition. They said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, well... Okay, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. Okay. So verse 17, they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Okay, that buys them another year, right? Okay, now the refrigerator's filled back up, the cupboards are filled back up. There's still probably going to be a rationing, you know. Imagine if we only get groceries once a year. Let's not dig in here. You know, let's make this last. Verse 18, when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we'll not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Now, that's the proposition. And that proposition sounds very strange to us. But this proposition wouldn't have been so strange to us had we lived at this time. And some of us might even think, 
maybe some of us might think of that college course you took, you know, you probably took both one and two, humanities, one and two. You know, there's that course you love so much. You remember that one? Some of you will remember that. Maybe. Maybe you found a way to get out of it. I don't know. Maybe you liked it. Some people really like the humanities. Or maybe we think back to high school, um, back when we were throwing rocks at the moon, um, and we had the, um, the social studies class, and we learned about the feudal system of the Middle Ages and feudal system of... Uh, Antiquity and what was the feudal system where people would be serfs to a lord, like you'd have a you'd have a, a powerful landlord who would own all these fields, and typically he would have a castle or some kind of fortress. And the arrangement that he would make is he would he would bring on these servants, and the servants would become his servants, and they would agree to work his fields. And they would agree to give a percentage of the produce of the fields to the landlord. And the remaining percentage would be theirs for themselves and their households. And in turn, the landlord would agree to protect them. He would typically have some type of militia, and he would protect them. And, and this was a way of life for many, many centuries for lots of people. And there actually could be some comfort in that uh, for the sake that, okay, uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, fellows, we don't have to worry about necessarily protecting our families by ourselves. We have this, we have this, um, this fellow down the road who's got, you know, all this money and he's got all this power and he's got, you know, he's got, we just, you know, we got to work the land anyway, so we'll work his land. He's going to provide us with everything we need. We'll work his land. We give him uh, X amount of produce a year and we get to keep the rest. Um, this was a way of life for many people. That's what they're proposing. That's what they're proposing because they've lived for the last couple of years with nothing but hunger. And what does Joseph say? Well, verse 20, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh for all of the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And we're told that only the priests of the land were exempt from this. Down to verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, your own as seed for the field, and as for food for ourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. Now, let's, let's stop right there, and let's... Let's think this through. How many think this is a, a wonderful story? I mean, is, is anybody, like, experiencing some discomfort with how this is gone? I mean, here are people, okay, their money is gone, right? Now their herds are gone. And then, followed by that, their land is gone. And now they're, even to one degree, their freedom is gone. You know, we, we've experienced something similar to this on a much smaller scale in our own country. Has anybody ever seen any of the footage of the Dust Bowl? Has anybody ever seen that? The Dust Bowl, you know, of, uh, I think it was like, what, the mid-20s to the mid-30s? Farming practices out in the Midwest, the Oklahoma Panhandle and uh, northern Texas, uh, I think Kansas, Colorado, maybe all the way up into Colorado. They just plowed those fields and they plowed those fields and they plowed those fields and 
there was a certain vegetation that was on the plains that the Lord had designed just for that area. And this particular vegetation would hold moisture. In fact, it would hold moisture all the way down something like 18 inches or two feet into the ground, into the dirt. And the Lord designed that so that the land would be able to endure the droughts that typically occur there. Well, what happened was this grand-scale farming plowed all of that vegetation into the ground, destroying it, and thus destroying the, the water meter of the whole land. And then a drought came, a severe drought came, and what was left was dust. And if you ever look at that footage, if you look, I mean, it, it's, it was always described on a biblical scale. Uh, people described it as Armageddon. And there's film footage that you can see where, uh, in some cases, as high as 10,000 feet, there's this big, massive dust cloud blowing, and sometimes upwards of 60 miles an hour. People actually felt like they were being sandblasted. It would take paint off of cars. It was unimaginable. And lots of people died from it, especially uh, youngsters. They died from it. They, they called it uh, dust pneumonia. Has anybody ever heard of that? Uh, where your lungs fill up with this dust. And, and there was, I remember seeing one footage where they showed all these cattle. There was nothing for them to eat, and they were just skin and bones. It was such a heartbreaking, heartbreaking footage. It leaves an indelible mark on your mind once you've seen it. And at one point, the U.S. government stepped in and bought the cattle off of the farmers. And much of that cattle just had to be euthanized. But they showed the, the effects that it had on the farmers, you know. Sure, they were happy to cash in the cattle for what they could because there was no money. There was, I remember seeing one story where there was a hardware store owner. And the hardware store owner, you know, he, he, you know his small town hardware store, his customers were his friends. Well, his friends were needing things. They would charge things up, and then there was no money, and they couldn't pay the hardware store owner. And they had letters and different things. There were some grandchildren who were still surviving. And they said, well, you know, Pap, he, he just, you know, he told everybody, listen, things are going to turn around. You can pay us when you, when you have time. You can pay us whenever. Well, that time never came. And eventually the, their grandfather couldn't pay his bills and he lost the, he lost the hardware store. And the sad thing is the man ended up taking his life. Uh, so we, we've experienced this 90 years ago in our own country. We've experienced this on a smaller scale. And I know for me, as I've studied this text, I've been thinking about the, the dust bowl as I've been studying this, and it's, it's easy to fall in the trap. You know, you have to ask this question, and this question is asked. Is Joseph in the right here? Is Joseph doing the right thing here? I mean, we've got these big piles of gold in Pharaoh's um, palace, and here are these people. Is Joseph doing the right thing? Well, here's what I want to caution you against. There are many skeptics that just will vilify Joseph through all of this. That's why I say we have to hang on verse 13 and verse 14 so tightly. Now, when we find ourselves vilifying Joseph, what we are certainly doing is taking 21st century American ideals and we're reading them into this ancient text. Okay, that's called eisegesis, by the way. If you want a fancy word for it, maybe you didn't want a fancy word for it. I guess you got one anyway. Um, exegesis is when we draw out of. Ex, the prefix ex means out of. Ice means into. When we're studying Scripture, we always want to be drawing the truth out of Scripture. We don't want to be bringing things and putting them into Scripture. 
Fact of the matter is, 21st century America is not known to Joseph. And I think there's a bit of hubris on our part because I think we think, well, 21st century America must be right. Right? We have to be right, right? Now, I wonder what kind of reaction that's going to elicit from some of our friends around this world that will listen to this message. Oh, yeah, you guys think you're always right. Guess what? We're not always right. Is it wise to set up long lines and just hand things out? We've had to ask that question at session. We've had to ask the question, Tri-State Community Church, we've actually had to come up with a policy. Is it wise just to hand things out? Now, it might sound like I'm getting political here, and many of you aren't going to accuse me of that because you know me so well. I don't, I, listen, my, my field of expertise is divinity. I went to school for theology. My master's degree is in divinity. It's not in political science. And I, I have no business. My call is to, is to proclaim the gospel. But sometimes these things touch on political issues, don't they? And I'm not trying to get political here. And I'm, nor am I trying to set this up as some kind of prescription for how we should operate today. I don't think that's the burden of this text. But that having been said, I do want to ask the question, is it wise? Would it have been wise for Joseph just to hand things out? And if we answer yes, let's ask this question. How's that been working out for us? What does that do to the recipients? I want to suggest that we need a challenge in this area. And I want to suggest that we recall what Pharaoh said of Joseph all the way back in chapter 41. He said, look, here is a man in whom is the wisdom of God and in whom is the Spirit of God. And Joseph, in his wisdom, he says to the people, bring your herds and your cattle in. I'll buy them. Now, I think that was extremely wise, and I'll tell you why. What was going to happen to that livestock? It's going to wither around and die. You're going to feed the livestock or you're going to feed your kids? Did, did Joseph necessarily want to take care of all this livestock? I mean, they are going to have to take care of it. As you bring it in, they're going to have to, it's, it's easier to take care of a pile of gold, isn't it? Would you rather have gold? Here's your choice. Would you rather have a bunch of gold or a cow? Most of us are probably going to choose the gold, right? I like the gold option a little better. Well, they get all these cattle. What kind of shape were all these cattle? And I'm reading between the lines here, but were all these cattle fit? I mean, it's, what, what was this? You know, uh, I'm just saying we ought to look at this a different way here. So that bought them another year. Now, what about the rest? Well, um, they had to sell their lands. They even had to sell their personhood, and they lost some freedom. In the, I'm not saying this is all perfect, because what's happening here is all of this wealth and all of this power is being funneled to one individual. That's never a good thing. That's why I say we don't want to set this up as any, some kind of prescription for today. Power always corrupts. But what I am saying is let's not villainize Joseph here. Right, let's not villainize Joseph. Actually, let's just ask the people, how have they reacted to all of this? We get an answer in verse 25. What do they say? This is what they say to Joseph. You have saved our lives. You see that in verse 25? You've saved our lives. 
May it please my Lord, we'll be servants to Pharaoh. There you are willing to surrender and submit to Pharaoh out of gratitude for what Joseph has done. And let's think about the arrangement. What is the arrangement? Well, the arrangement is, okay, you can work the lands. You're not going to have to worry about food no more. You can work the lands, and you're going to have to pay 20% in taxes. How much do we pay in taxes? The fact is, we don't know. There isn't a person in this room that knows how much they pay in taxes. I mean, you get, a, you get a dollar bill handed to you, and it's subject to what? State tax? Federal tax? Depending on you where you work, it might also be subject to a wage tax. And, okay, now you've got what's left. You go out and spend it. Let's put some, let's put some gas in the grocery getter. How much of the proceeds of that gas is taxes? I don't know. It's a lot. Okay, well, off to the supermarket we go. All right, when you pick the produce off the supermarket, okay, what establishes the market value of the oranges and the apples and all the things that we want to put in our car? Well, uh, the overhead of the farmer, in part. The farmers, they have these machines that run on petroleum, and petroleum is just littered with all kinds of use taxes and what have you, and that all goes into the cost of what we're purchasing. And, you know, you decide, well, in the state of West Virginia, you have to pay tax on your cars, right? Some people complain about that, but I left Pennsylvania to come to West Virginia because the taxes we pay on our cars is nothing compared to the school tax that people in Pennsylvania pay. Most people that live in West Virginia that complain about their taxes have never lived anywhere else. I mean, wake up, go to Allegheny County. I hear people complain. I'm thinking to myself, wow, goodness, man. I have friends that live in Allegheny County. I have a friend. He lives in a very, very much. He lives in a house that's actually kind of run down. It needs a lot of work. He pays $300 a month in taxes on that house. That house is paid for, but he still has to pay $300 a month on it. We'll do that. In fact, that $300 is only going to go up for the rest of the time he lives there. It's not going to go down. $300 a month. This isn't a big fancy house that he lives in. That's one of the reasons he doesn't live in a big fancy house. The point that I'm trying to make here is we have no idea how much we pay in taxes. And I'm not trying to start any kind of revolution here or anything. My comments are at the service of this text, okay? That's all. That's all. And it's at the service, really, it's at the service of misinterpreting this text, of trying to vilify Joseph. Joseph has this, he has this thing set up where they're going to pay 20%. I guarantee every one of us in here, except for the children, are paying more than 20%. If we, if tomorrow we could say, okay, tomorrow you're going to pay 20% in taxes, oh, would we have a party? You'd have so much money left over based on what you've been paying. Something is going on here that is really beautiful. In verse 25, okay, they have lost so much. The people have lost so much. They've lost so very much. But they look to Joseph and they say, you have saved our lives. My guess is Joseph's approval rating is 100% right now. And then when he gets in his chariot and he goes down the street, 
Oh, boy. Oh, is he cherished? And he ought to be cherished because his integrity is off the charts. What has he done? What has he successfully done? He has successfully mediated between Pharaoh and the people in a fair and equitable way that is good for everyone. That's what he's pulled off. Now, what does that remind us of? Before we get to that, let's just ask a question. What brought all this on? Why have these people lost so much? And people said, well, see, it's easy, Rick. It's a famine. Yeah, I know. Well, where'd the famine come from? Well, you see, it's just one of those things that happens like every hundred years, you know? It's just like the perfect storm. Like every hundred years, you know, um, there's a big flood in a particular area. Or every hundred years, there's... Really? You ever heard that line? We don't need to be in the dark about the, about the cause of all of this. Just take a look at Genesis 41 and verse 25. Just turn back there. It's very instructional to do that. It's just very instructive to do that. Look at, you know, in verse 25, the context is Joseph has now been pulled out of his orange jumpsuit. He's been cleaned up. He's brought into Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh's explained his dreams to him. And, Pharaoh, and, and Joseph is about to explain the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. And what does he say? He says to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what God is about to do. Well, what is God about to do? Well, he's going to give you seven years of, of, of just wonderful prosperity. So save your money. Because following that seven years, it's going to be severe famine. If we wanted to put this in Job's words, Job put it so wonderfully. Job said, the Lord giveth. And that part we get, don't we? The Lord giveth. We like that. But Job goes on to say, the Lord taketh away. So you see, it's both prosperity and loss. They both, both precepts are true. We have to embrace both precepts. And then that, that brings us to, you know, back to Genesis 47, verse 25. That brings us back to, well, what's the purpose of this? Why would God do this? And I will submit to you, he does it for his glory and our salvation. Now, let's connect those dots. How's this glorifying the Lord? Where are all the eyes of the Egyptians in verse 25? Who are they looking at? They are looking at Joseph. Who is Joseph? Joseph is the Lord's mediator. Now, he's a mediator with a little m. He's, he's the one who has been called to mediate at a particular time and a, and a particular place between particular people. But here we have an illustration and the song that we were singing, that we were singing about Elijah and we we're singing about, you know, all of those types and shadows that Donald mentioned. Well, here we have a, here we have a shadow. Here we have a type. Here we have an illustration of the mediator with a capital M. Who is the mediator with the capital M? It's Christ. Why is that so important? Well, mediators, what do they do? They go between two parties, right? And they work out. They work out an equitable relationship between two parties. Joseph is off the charts here. These people are so excited. Joseph, you've saved our lives. You want us to serve Pharaoh? We'll serve Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh must be like, 
wow, this Joseph character. And we're never going to have a prime minister like Joseph. From here, it goes straight down. And it does. We'll see as we go into Exodus. We'll see. It's, this is the high point. There's never going to be a prime minister like Joseph. But Joseph is a type. He's a shadow of Christ. So we could say that this crisis, this crisis, how do I put it in my notes? This crisis, all of the eyes are on Joseph. But this is a shadow of the true Messiah Christ. And let's think about the crisis of the cross. Where are the eyes at the cross? The eyes are on the mediator. The eyes are on, on Jesus. Many, many and most eyes don't believe at that point. But the eyes are upon him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will what? I will draw all men to myself. That's the point of him being lifted up. Now, most of the time we think, well, you need to be lifted up on your throne. But the crisis of it all was, no, Jesus wasn't lifted up on a throne. Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Why? Because of the crisis. This, this is a, in our text, we have a crisis that involved Egypt and Canaan. But in the case of Jesus, he's dealing with a crisis that, belo that belongs to the entire world. That's a global crisis. What is the crisis? We're all rebels against God. And in times of prosperity, we're never going to look to God. If, if, you know, if on Sunday afternoons we open that refrigerator and we're looking and, you know, I mean, hey, what are we looking at God for? Refrigerator's full. How's God going to get our attention? Take everything out of that refrigerator. Take everything out of that refrigerator. There's another word that's really important here. And when we think about God's glory, here's an important word. When you think about God's, if you've never made this connection, make this connection. When you're thinking about the glory of God, there's a word that is so important in understanding the glory of God. You want to know what that word is? It's the word victory. Victory. Joseph has given them victory. Victory over what? Victory over death by starvation. We're alive. You've saved our lives. We have been victorious over this famine because of you. You led us to store up this grain so it's available to us. See, victory. What is that a type of? Think about the victory at Calvary. What did Jesus accomplish as he died on the cross? What is the, what is, what is the, the, the table? What is it? You know, what is it symbolic of? You know, the bread and the cup. It's symbolic of, of Christ's death in our place where he, gave, where he became victorious over the evil one. He became victorious over the flesh. And he became victorious over death. What is the greatest enemy that each of us face? It's death. Now, could we have ever perceived that without a crisis? Which leads to my last thing, which is this another single word, and it's called mercy. If God would have told an angel, listen, um, I am merciful, and I want you to go tell humanity, tell everybody, I am merciful. Okay, that's good enough. God said he's merciful, therefore he's merciful. That's really abstract to us, though, isn't it? 
There's only one way that God can show how merciful he is, and that's in the midst of crisis. In the midst of crisis. Man, these cupboards have been empty, and we thought we were going to die. That's what the Egyptians said. What does the believer say? I've discovered I am a sinner, and I deserve death. That's what the sinner, that's, that's, what, that's what we have. We have to come to that conclusion. If you haven't come to that conclusion, you're still en route. You haven't come full circle yet. I don't mean any disrespect to anyone in this room, but your sin is black as coal, and you've rebelled against a loving God who has never done anything but bless you. And you got a problem. And I can say you have a problem because I know I, I had a problem too. Because my sin is the same way. In fact, I probably in a I'm probably a bigger sinner and greater sinner than you are. But we both have a problem. And it's the biggest problem that we can have. But here's the good news. The Lord has brought us a solution to that problem. And as soon as we start thinking our sin is no big deal, then you look at the cross. You just take a look at the cross. Because if you were the only human being alive and the only sin that Jesus had to atone for was your personal sin, he would still be up on that cross enduring that agony. And it's only as we begin to understand that, it's only as we begin to understand that we begin to see God's mercy. We really begin to see His mercy. And as we begin to see His mercy, see His mercy is like the queen of His attributes. I'd say His love is the king, His mercy is the queen. No disrespect, ladies, please don't hammer me. I'm just fishing for words to try to describe this stuff in. It's hard. But His mercy is such a grand attribute of His, isn't it? Not. It's such a grand attribute. How else could we perceive it? So it's for these reasons that I would submit that crisis, as severe as they can be, losing all this stuff, loss, all this loss. Let's not leave here and try to offer explanations to one another as to why we've lost certain things. That's not what's in view here. We don't know the answer to that, and it's pastorally cruel to try to offer answers to that. But what we can say, we can derive a principle from here, and we can see from these principles. We might not be able to connect the dots in terms of particulars. Maybe the Lord will show us in eternity. I'm not thinking we're going to even care when we get into eternity. But what we can do is we can apply this principle. We can say, okay, this loss hurts. And also, don't go up to somebody like this is when people are in the, in the midst of the pangs of loss. Don't go up to them with some corny solution. Well, God works everything out for the good of the... Don't do that. That's really true. Romans 8.28 is true. Toys like a posting, Tom Theon. This is a Greek. It's really true. But when you approach people who are hurting, hurt with them. Because when you hurt with them, you're not going to be rattling off Romans 8.28 when you're hurting with them. You don't even really want to hear Romans 8.28. What do you want? You want somebody to give you a hug. Shut, yapper, give, hug. These are the instructions. Open up. What's the first thing we do? Shut your yapper. What's the second thing we do? Give a hug. Now, some people might not want a hug. 
Some people don't like hugs. So just be there. Remember, step one, shut yapper. Step number two, possible hug. Okay? But do you get my drift? These things are painful for people when they hear that stuff and they're in the midst of pain. And we, we drive to the funeral home or we drive to the hospital, we drive to the yard, ER, and we think we have to have the right words. Quit it. Stop it. You're not, you're not the Holy Spirit. Just show up. And just listen and be attentive. That's all. That's all you got to do. That's hard enough. You know how hard it is to keep your mouth shut? Some of us, it's harder than others. I ain't mentioned any names. Okay. Hopefully I've made my case. The title of this morning's message is that crisis is the servant of God's glory and our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Father, we so thank you for your mercy. So thank you for your grace, your kindness. Oh, Father, loss is so difficult for us to experience. It's so painful. And, and many of us are no strangers to loss. We have lost, and we have lost, and we have lost. And, Father, if we're not careful with messages like this, we can really sound like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So, Father, I pray you'll give us wisdom. It's the last thing that people who are hurting want to hear some kind of smart alecky. Well, that's a servant of uh, God, you know, suffering. It's the last thing they want to hear. But, Father, we need to know the truth. We need to know, Father, how this works so that we can endure the loss. Teach us, O oh Father. Teach us the equal truth that not only the good things that come into our lives are from you, but also the bad things. Well, Father, that does in no way make you author of evil, but you do permit things to happen to us. You allow certain things to happen to us, Father, and why, we don't know. But the general principle, Father, we, we can know because you are so good, we can know that it, is, that it is good. Ultimately, it will be good. That it serves, we can say at the very least, that it serves your, it serves your glory and it serves the salvation of your people. And, oh, Father, as we think about some of the painful things we've endured, none of us even collectively will ever endure what Jesus has endured in our place. So you never ask us to endure something that you haven't endured yourself. Well, Father, help us to put all this in perspective that we may be empowered, Lord, to undergo loss and to undergo loss in a way that is glorifying to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.